On the morning of June 13th, 323 BC, the city of Babylon was in utter chaos. It seemed as if a manic frenzy had gripped the Macedonian soldiers garrisoned there. The phalangites and various infantry had taken up arms against the horsemen of the companion cavalry. Open warfare was nearly at hand. After spending 13 years campaigning together across the known world, sharing in the glory and hardship, what could have pushed the Macedonians to prepare to kill one another like this? Well, the Macedonian king, Alexander the Great, had died only a few days prior, and left behind an empire so unimaginably vast and wealthy that it seemed ripe for the taking. It was a chilling preview for the next 30 years as the successors of Alexander, known as the Diadochoi, would become enraptured in the wars, political intrigue, and marriage alliances that would draw the map of the Hellenistic world. Join me in our first episode of a new series covering the wars of the Diadochoi, entitled To the Strongest. Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, Episode 14, To the Strongest. The King is Dead, Long Live the Kings? In the wake of King Alexander's death, the leading officers and marshals of the Macedonian army had arranged a meeting in the ancient city of Babylon to discuss the matter of kingship which had now been thrown into a succession crisis. Alexander died before he was able to produce a male heir to the throne of Macedon, and also failed to name a successor. The council deliberated on the matter, and a number of options did come up. The most immediate choice was a man named Aridaeus, a son of Philip II and a half-brother of Alexander. And since he was in Babylon at the time of the king's death, there would be no need for a period of interregnum. The biggest problem was that Aridaeus was considered mentally disabled and was probably epileptic as well, and thus he could barely manage the kingship. The other alternative was through the principal wife of Alexander, Roxana. She had conceived some time before Alexander's death, and the child born would thus be the progeny of Alexander and of the Argead line. The difficulty was that it was impossible to tell if the child was to be a male or female, since only the males could inherit the throne of Macedon, and given that Roxana was a Sogdian princess, the child would also be of a mixed ethnic stock. Debate and arguments flared as plans were proposed and cast out. Though not spoken of outright, there were other candidates to rule the empire, not of the Argeid family line. The most prominent of these was Perdiccas, the Chiliarch, or second-in-command of the Macedonian forces. He had acquired the trust of Alexander while on campaign, to the point where he had been bequeathed the position of Chiliarch, formerly held by Hyphestion, the close friend of the king. Perdiccas had also received the royal signet ring from Alexander while upon his deathbed. In Perdiccas' viewpoint, Roxana's child should be next in line to the throne. His motives, though, were obvious. Boy or girl, the child would be unfit for rule for the next 18 years and would need someone to stand in as regent. And who else would be fit but the most loyal of Alexander's men? Perdiccas' pushiness on the issue and how hastily he arranged the meeting were possibly because of another unspoken candidate. Craterus. Craterus was the talented general who commanded the phalanx, demonstrating his own adept ability at operating independently during the Indian campaign 
and the returning march home. Unlike Perdiccas, he had the loyalty and respect of the army, and was also closely located in the inner circle of the king. Alexander's supposed last words, toi kratisto, which translates to the strongest, was suggested by some ancient and modern authors that he was really trying to say toi krateros, giving the kingship to Craterus. It is with good reason that Perdiccas should seek to outmaneuver Craterus, who was currently in Cilicia, leading some 10,000 Macedonian veterans back to Macedon before getting word of the king's death. With Perdiccas' proposal came rebuttal. Nearchus, the navarch of the Macedonian fleet, had proposed that they could enthrone a five-year-old boy named Heracles. Heracles was reputedly the illegitimate offspring between Alexander and a Persian mistress, but he was also readily available in Babylon. A further rebuke came from Ptolemy, another officer of the companion cavalry. It was he who pointed out the elephant in the room. Both Heracles and the unborn child of Roxana were not of full Macedonian or even partly Greek blood. They would be of half-Asian stock from wives taken as part of conquest, and the conservative Macedonians could never accept it. He then put forth a proposition where the officers will keep business of the empire, as per usual, where they will come together as some sort of ruling body and watch over the satrapies assigned to them. Outside the supposedly restricted council of nobles, the rank-and-file soldiers were basically barging their way into the meeting room. The Macedonians were divided into two camps upon who should receive the kingship. The infantry, comprised of peasants and members of the lower class, leaned towards Aridaeus. Despite his infirmities, he had the blood of Philip II in his veins, and was a Macedonian of the Argid family line. This, coupled with the gradual distancing between Alexander and the memory of Philip II, the one who raised them from backwater to premier hegemon of Greece, made them side with Aridaeus. The cavalry, on the other hand, comprised of nobility and Alexander's close associates, maintained that Roxana's child would be the rightful heir. Things came to a boil when an officer named Meliager rallied the infantry, nearly inciting a riot in an effort to demand Aridaeus be enthroned. The infantry and cavalry had squared off, but nothing came to pass, given Perdiccas ordering a retreat from the city, allowing it to be taken by Meliager. It was a tactical retreat, though, since it meant Babylon could now be sieged. In the end, cooler heads prevailed. It was by the efforts of Eumenes of Cardia, the Greek secretary of Alexander, that a compromise would be made. What would be called the Partition of Babylon effectively laid out the plans of the kingship and how the empire was to be run. In it, both Aridaeus, now called Philip Aridaeus, and the unborn child of Roxana, if it was a boy, would rule as joint kings. This kingship would be secured by Perdiccas's job as, quote, protector of the kings, giving him control over the bulk of the empire in Asia, while Meliager would serve as second banana to Perdiccas. Craterus would be given the rather ambiguous title of, quote, protector of the kingdom. The last figure would be Antipater, who had served as standing regent of Macedon during Alexander's campaigns, before being forcibly retired thanks to the efforts of Olympias, Alexander's mother. Antipater was to be given the title Royal General of Europe. In time, Roxana would give birth to a boy, and he was promptly named Alexander IV and made joint kingship with Aridaeus. Well, 
This lasted for a mere few weeks before Perdiccas had decided to shake things up. Unhappy with the prospect of sharing power with Meliager, he decided to lull his counterpart into a false sense of security. After arranging a display of reconciliation between the two, Meliager and 300 of the ringleaders of the plot to put Aridaeus on the throne were arrested on counts of sedition, and were executed by being trampled to death by war elephants. Perdiccas was not messing around. Perdiccas had also arranged another meeting, where he divided the administration of the empire, giving the position of satrapies to the officers present. Now, I don't expect you to have the patience to listen to me recite each satrapy and the current ruler, but I will list the most important here. Antipater and Craterus were to receive joint command of Europe, including Macedonia and Greece. Ptolemy was insistent that he be commander of Egypt, and he was happily given it. The commander Lysimachus would control Thrace. Antigonus Monophthalmos, meaning the one-eyed, was given southern Asia Minor, and unlucky Eumenes of Cardia received Cappadocia and Paphlagonia in eastern Asia Minor. Though the Accords may have been settled in Babylon, it wasn't just the center of the empire that was thrown into chaos upon Alexander's death. Next, we will turn to Greece, where a rebellion was being fostered right on the home front of Macedon. The Greeks were never particularly fond of Macedonian overlordship. In the wake of Philip II's assassination in 336, they attempted to throw off the yoke in the hopes a secession crisis would stall any potential retaliation. This was a fool's hope, and any rebellious poles lay down their arms after Alexander quickly retook control and ordered the city of Thebes to be burned down to the ground as a warning against any future endeavors. But this wasn't the only time a revolt in Greece would occur during Alex's reign when in 331 the Spartan king August III tried defeating the forces of Antipater, until being killed that same year during the Battle of Megalopolis. Things in Greece remained relatively quiet for the next eight years, until a number of events would rekindle the fires of freedom yet again. In 324 at the Olympic Games, Alexander ordered the Exiles Decree. This was a proclamation that all of the exiles of the cities of Greece would be allowed to return to, or rather be brought back to, their home cities. This was done because Alexander wanted a number of loyal former exiles to be placed in each city to prevent rebellion. But at the same time, he wanted to try and limit the amount of Greeks running around as mercenaries for hire in Asia. Some of the general population was pleased by this, but it also indicated that Alexander was going to act a bit more overtly autocratic, despite his standing as strategos of the Corinthian League, which now had begun to lose its illusion of autonomy. The cities of Athens and Aetolia were particularly furious, because both the Athenian-owned Samos and the Aetolian-owned, pardon me for this pronunciation, Oenia Dei, were both taken territories from their original inhabitants who were exiled, they would not accept having to withdraw their citizens that repopulated these cities. And worse, they would probably have to deal with the former exiles who would likely want revenge. In addition to this, a man named Harpolis showed up in the city of Athens. To say showed up is a bit of a misnomer though. 
Harpalus had served as royal treasurer while Alexander was campaigning out east, but he had mismanaged the wealth and actually embezzled and stole several thousands of talents worth of silver. He had already been caught and reprimanded by Alexander already, but his greed got the better of him, and he certainly would have been executed when Alexander caught him again. So, before the king returned to Babylon, Harpalus fled with about 5,000 talents and roughly 6,000 mercenaries, eventually fleeing to the city of Athens. There he cultivated a friendship with the Athenian orator and anti-Macedonian firebrand named Demosthenes. At first, Demosthenes was horrified at Harpalus' appearance, fearing that Alexander's wrath would that would be brought down upon the city for harboring a fugitive. But the potential usefulness of the wealth and soldiers for the anti-Macedonian cause proved irresistible to the staunch patriot. He was exiled from Athens on charges of bribery, but the timely nature of Alexander's death had him recalled back home, to reserve as the figurehead of the new Hellenic War to recover the freedom of the Greeks. In secret, the Athenians would make their move. In the autumn of 323, they placed Leosthenes, a respected military man, as commander of their forces, and he used Harpalus' money to acquire arms, armor, and mercenaries, while at the same time instituting levies across Greece. The Aetolians and various other poles gathered more manpower, and the Athenians acquired a set of triremes. The army numbered around 25 to 28,000 soldiers, with 200 ships. Not all were caught up in the fires of freedom, those like the Athenian statesman Phocion, who declared that, quote, our citizens are all buried at home in their own tombs, and also commented about the forces of Leosthenes, saying, quote, they are good enough for a sprint, but if it is to be a long race, then I fear for Athens. Back in Macedon, Antipater was in a panic. Word reached him of the upstart Athenians, but his abilities were limited. Manpower was short, since the bulk of the military-aged men were sent as replacements to Babylon a few months prior, and the marine tradition was never as well developed in Macedon as it was in Athens. The total forces immediately available to Antipater numbered around 13,000 with 100 triremes. Antipater called upon Craterus, who was in Cilicia at the time, with the 10,000 veteran Macedonian troops returning home, to come and help as fast as he could. In addition to Craterus, with little options available, Antipater asked for the help of one Leonatus, reinforcing the proposal with a marriage alliance to one of Antipater's daughters. Leonatus was a former bodyguard of Alexander and acting satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia. He and Antipater never really liked each other much, but the real desire of Leonatus was to probably acquire the hand of Cleopatra, the half-sister of Alexander and daughter of Olympias and potentially get the throne of Macedon. Cleopatra had sent correspondence to Leonatus proposing marriage, very likely at the insistence of Olympias, who probably sought to counter the marriage offer of Antipater, and get rid of the old fool once and for all. It should be mentioned that this is the period where women begin to play a more pronounced part in the affairs of Greek and Macedonian politics. Olympias could never accept being demoted to a secondary wife of Philip II, and even from her self-imposed exile in her native Molossia in Epirus, she had sought to channel her ambition through Alexander. News of her beloved son's demise was probably crushing to her, but it also meant that she was no longer going to be safe in a world without Alexander. She would take charge of her own safety, that of her daughter-in-law's Rakshana, 
and her grandson Alexander IV, and she would let no one stand in the way of the young child taking the title of Basileos. What would be called the Lamian War would begin on the outskirts of a town, conveniently called Lamia, located in central Greece near the famed Pass of Thermopylae. Antipater had attempted to halt the progress of Leosthenes, but was overwhelmed by the latter's numerical superiority and retreated back to the main town. The Greeks then put Antipater under siege, but the Macedonians defended the citadel for several months, and even managed to kill Leosthenes with a well-placed stone to the head. The new Greek commander Antiphilus could not break into the city, and the Greeks eventually gave up the siege in the spring of 322. This was likely spurred on by the arrival of Leonatus and his army of Macedonian reinforcements. The battle was tough, and it was thanks to the dogged determination of the Greeks and the outmaneuvering against Leonatus that victory for the rebels was gained. Leonatus himself was surrounded and killed, and the remaining survivors fled back to Antipater's camp. All seemed bleak for Antipater, until the arrival of Craterus with the 10,000 veterans in the summer of 322. Combining their forces with the surviving Macedonians, they numbered about 45,000 soldiers, larger than the remaining 25,000 Greeks. On September the 5th, the combined forces of Antipater and Craterus took the field and crushed the Greek coalition, effectively ending any large-scale resistance. Most of the cities had surrendered, abandoning their Athenian allies. The people of Athens were terrified, thinking they'd be the next thieves. Antipater was not as vengeful, though he would demand the complete submission of Athens, reducing the democracy to the rule by the statesman Phocion, and relocated several thousand Athenian citizens across Thrace and have a Macedonian garrison installed inside the city. In a moment where the sword actually is sometimes mightier than the pen, Demosthenes had fled Athens and committed suicide rather than letting himself be taken prisoner. A statue of Demosthenes was then erected with the fitting inscription, quote, If only your strength had been equal, Demosthenes, to your wisdom, never would Greece have been ruled by a Macedonian Ares. For his services in ending the Lamian War, Antipater rewarded Craterus with the hand of his eldest daughter, Philia, forming an effective alliance against the now concerned Perdiccas. Let us turn to events in the east, where Perdiccas was dealing with some problems of his own. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Now, if you're anything like me, you're often commuting, working out at the gym, or just doing boring old chores around the house, and it's hard to find time to settle down and read a book. That's why I like to use Audible. Audible provides an unparalleled library of audiobooks, original shows, and more, right at your fingertips making it easy to take your favorite books or new finds on the go. As a special treat, Audible is currently offering a 30-day free trial membership. That's right, free. And you get a credit to the audiobook of your choice. I'd like to start off recommending my favorite history book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, by Adrian Goldsworthy. Covering the life of the most well-known Roman in history, Julius Caesar, Goldsworthy illuminates the troubled final years of the Roman Republic, and shows the consequences of one man's pursuit of power. To get this book for free and to find out more, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Hellenistic Age Podcast and get started today.
Copernicus had spent much of 323 to 322 trying to consolidate territory in the empire. The land of Cappadocia, located in eastern Anatolia, was never fully conquered by Alexander. A Persian named Arirathes had remained king of the region and refused to submit. Eumenes of Cardia was given command over the satrapy of Cappadocia in the partition of Babylon, but this probably just reflects the general disdain the Macedonians had for the Greek Eumenes, knowing full well that the land had to be conquered, and if Eumenes had died out in the field, well, then that's one less competitor. As a courtesy, Perkis had ordered that Leonatus and Antigonus Monophthalmos, whom I will just call Antigonus from now on, were to take Eumenes to Cappadocia and establish him as the satrap. Antigonus, never liking Perdiccas, chose to ignore that order, and Leonatus began to help Eumenes, but the offer from Antipater and Cleopatra was too tempting to resist staying. He did try to get Eumenes to join along with him after revealing the letters from Cleopatra, but Eumenes, knowing that Antipater hated him personally, and believing that Leonatus was foolish and unstable, chose to flee back to Perdiccas in Babylon, with cavalry and about 5,000 talents, where he told the region of Leonatus's and Antipater's schemes. Perdiccas showered this loyalty with a position of high council, and he himself led an army to properly conquer Cappadocia. Arirathes was eventually caught and crucified in 322, finally securing the province for Eumenes to control. Eumenes, despite having no command experience, would turn from relying solely on the forces of the other Diodohoi into a general of his own right. He would use his intelligence and organizational skills to re-establish order over disobedient Macedonians in the satrapy of Armenia, creating an effective fighting force with a well-trained army of at least 6,000 shock cavalry, paid for with his own funds. It was remarkable, and probably a bit unnerving to the other Diodohoi, to see a Greekling secretary eventually become a competent commander at the head of a respectable army in a few short months. It seems that marriage and warfare go hand in hand when it comes to the Diodohoi. In 322, Perdiccas was approached by Cleopatra for a marriage alliance, also spurred on by Olympias. One small problem though, Perdiccas was already technically married, or at the very least engaged to Nikea, a daughter of Antipater. This original match was probably to stay on good terms with Macedon in order to continue the flow of new Macedonian recruits for the army. But why buy the milk if the whole cow is free? Now, that doesn't sound quite right, but it was clearly a more attractive offer to potentially get the entire kingship. And for Olympias, it was more tolerable to have Perdiccas as an enemy of Antipater rather than his friend. Perdiccas decided to do some more double dealing and continued to pretend to be married to Nikea while also accepting the offer of Cleopatra. Antipater despite approaching his late 70s, was still as clever as he was observant. He quickly caught on to this sham and was infuriated by Perdiccas' betrayal. Events between 322 and 321 are a bit confusing, but there seems to be a story about a possible marriage alliance between Adea, a niece of Alexander the Great, to Philip Aridaeus. The mother, named Sanane, was on her way from Macedon to Asia Minor, when somehow a scuffle broke out between the escort of the two women and the envoys of Perdiccas, resulting in the death of Sinane. This really did not go well in Babylon, where the soldiers rioted in question of why women of the house of the Argiads were killed. Things went from bad to worse when Antigonus arrived on the scene. 
I mentioned that Antigonus had refused to aid Eumenes in his conquest of Cappadocia, despite being ordered to do so by Perdiccas himself. Things remained relatively uneasy between them until the autumn of 321, where Perdiccas summoned Antigonus to explain himself for his actions earlier. Realizing that he was now caught between two sides, one led by Craterus and Antipater, and the other of Perdiccas, and also realizing that Perdiccas probably was going to have a quote-unquote accident befall him when he arrived in Babylon, Antigonus decided to cast his lot. He fled to Europe, informing all of the drama that had occurred in Babylon with the death of Sinane and the marriage alliance with Cleopatra. This incensed Antipater, and calling upon Craterus and Antigonus, war was now brewing, and there was little hope of peace. But it wasn't marriage alliances or murder that would be the great catalyst to begin the first war of the Diadochoi. It would actually be a corpse. Not just any corpse, mind you, but that of Alexander the Great. Immediately upon his death, the embalmers of Babylon went to work to preserve the king's body as best as they could, given that the heat of the region would quickly disfigure a corpse in no time. One of the great questions of the time was where should Alexander's body be interred? Should it be brought back to Macedon and entombed in Agiae with his father Philip? Should it be kept in Babylon, his center of power? Or, according to a last wish of Alexander, should it be put in the temple of Zeus Ammon at the Oracle of Siwa in Egypt? This may seem a bit much to us, but the location of his burial would be extremely important. About as large in death as he was in life, the body of Alexander had transcended the physical. The body achieved a status as some sort of talisman, which bequeathed the owner of it with an aura of legitimacy and divine favor. And part of the rules of the Macedonian kingship was that the next in line must be the one to bury the predecessor, lest any evil fortune or lack of symbolic gestures tarnish the reputation of the new king. So, what happened to it? Well, the answer to this question would be forced through the figure I have mentioned little about in this episode, Ptolemy, son of Lagos, soon to be known as Ptolemy I Soter. As I mentioned earlier, Ptolemy was granted control of the Egyptian satrapy in 323 at the partition of Babylon. He himself never seemed particularly interested in the unity of the empire, nor seeing an Argiad on the throne. Instead, he was content with becoming a pseudo-king in his own right, in Egypt. Egypt itself was an extremely fertile satrap, producing a huge amount of grain thanks to the seasonal flooding of the Nile River. There also was a huge stock of money, numbering 8,000 talents left there by Alexander and the previous satrap, which technically belonged to the king of Macedon, but Ptolemy just seemed to overlook this fact and appropriated it to his own funds. Ptolemy's rationale was never to try to get the whole empire like Perdiccas or later Cassander but instead rule out over a province comfortably carved out in a manner that was more diplomatic than aggressive. So when Ptolemy took control in 323, he made some extra efforts to increase his hold over the region. He illegally annexed Cyrene and married a daughter of Antipater, leaning towards a division with Perdiccas. The most outrageous act by Ptolemy would still yet occur. In 321, the funeral carriage containing the body of Alexander was traveling in Syria. The casket and carriage, which is described as being decked out in gold and silver, with ivory towers and jewels peppering the sides, with friezes depicting his great victories over the various nations he had conquered, and representations of the gods and goddesses who stood by the king throughout all of his campaigns. 
things went awry at this point, because the escort provided by Perdiccas was either driven off by the forces of Ptolemy or bribed, and the body was hijacked and dropped off in Memphis and eventually Alexandria, where it would remain for the next several hundred years. This betrayal would put the final nail in the coffin, no pun intended. There was no chance of Ptolemy having peace with Perdiccas, and in reality it ended peace between all of the Diodohoi. Ptolemy had thrown his support in with Antipater, Craterus, and Antigonus, his coalition against Perdiccas. This would be the trend for the next few decades. A single marshal who seeks complete control of the empire would have to be fought off by a collection of other generals. But for the time being, we will have to end our narrative here. And in the next episode, we will proceed where we are leaving off. The First War of the Diadohoi. So ends another episode. I hope I've been able to provide a good survey and not overwhelm you with this period, since it's very complicated with far more prolific characters than the Alexander Saga. Things can get confusing, but I hope to remedy any issues with an announcement. I now have a website! So each episode page will be packed with my sources, helpful images and maps to accompany you if you need any assistance. It'll also include all my future book recommendations and a link to the offer provided by Audible. The site is located at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com, and I will include a link in the podcast description. It's still a work in progress and kinda sucks, but I plan to make it more user-friendly in the future. If you like this episode and want to hear more, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm also on Twitter, at HellenisticPOD, that's all one word. Also, I would sincerely appreciate if you left a 5-star review on iTunes. That way it'll help the show grow in popularity so more can hear it. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, this has been the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>